Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. PowerCast is a new bi-weekly audio program for those interested in the top conservative insight and analysis of energy, climate, and environmental issues. My name is Darren Bax, and I'm Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. In the last edition of the PowerCast, we discussed many of the provisions within the Inflation Reduction Act. In this edition, we're primarily going to focus on what the next steps should be for conservatives when it comes to energy and climate in part considering that the House and Senate have now passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Both votes were along party lines, with no Republicans voting for the bill. Here's some quick background. The Inflation Reduction Act, a name that's quite honestly insulting to Americans given that it will likely increase inflation, was spent an estimated $369 billion on energy and climate programs. Here's just some of what it does. First, billions would be spent to promote electric appliances and energy-efficient retrofits, electric vehicles, and solar wind energy. Bill creates a $27 billion EPA slush fund to dole out money to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It provides about $20 billion to promote what the left refers to as climate-smart agricultural practices. It would increase the cost for oil and gas drilling by increasing the royalties companies have to pay for offshore drilling and onshore oil drilling. That's just a sampling of the Green New Deal policies included in the bill. So what should be the next steps for conservatives when it comes to climate and energy? I'm joined by two leading energy experts to discuss that question. Thomas Pyle is the president of the Institute for Energy Research, and Jack Spencer is senior research fellow of energy and environmental policy in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. So let's get right to it. Um, First, Jack and Tom, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. A real pleasure to be back with you guys. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Jack. So let's start a little bit with the kind of the lowlights of the Inflation Reduction Act. And I I wanted to give each of you a chance to highlight some of these lowlights that you think exist in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. And, Tom, let me start with you. What do you think are some of the kind of lowlights, or if you think, highlights in your view? (laughs) uh, Nothing in this bill I would consider a highlight. Um, but I would say this, the, the royalty rates trouble me because they're being billed, uh, this is for oil and gas, uh, they're being billed as a way to incentivize more leasing, but it will actually do the opposite. The methane tax bothers me because it is a form of carbon tax, which will hit families, uh, motorists, hardest. Um, the expansion of these tax credits for wind, solar EVs. New subsidies for things like batteries and, you know, pumping up this CCS, this carbon capture stuff. These are problematic. Uh, It's just doubling down on what I would call stupid energy policies. I think, though, that the silver lining here is uh, a couple of folds. One, this is a reconciliation bill. It's a tax bill. It's a subsidy bill. It's not a regulation. It's not a carbon tax. It is not instructing the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases. Uh, This is all this Congress can muster with all their bluster, the left and the Democrats, they just can't seem to convince Americans that they should be punished 
for living their lives. So, you know, this can be clawed back. Fortunately, um, it, you know, it, it, it is 390 billion over 10 years, but it could be shortened. It could be reversed. Uh, those are some of the sort of, to me, sort of the highlights, if you will. And then one more thing is, is that in order to cobble together this sort of blue-green coalition between uh, Greens and, and union folks, they put all kinds of domestic content requirements and all kinds of stuff with prevailing wage requirements and things like that in order to qualify for the increased subsidies, which might be a challenge for some of these folks uh, uh, to be able to, to apply for and receive. So I guess if you could say there are highlights, it is that, uh, you know, it could have been worse. So, Tom, on that last point, you know, it's interesting is that the some of the labor union requirements and some of the other requirements that they put in the, the bill, you, you kind of have these kind of cross purposes. You know, they, they put policies in there that actually would undermine their own kind of stated objective to try to promote their clean energy, et cetera. So they just make it more difficult to do. Well, the whole thing is a contradiction. I mean, this is just stupid energy policy because – it, you know, and they're trying to, I'm sure we'll get into all this, but they're trying to electrify everything at the same time. They're trying to, to force intermittent, unreliable electricity generation on us, which is threatening the grid. So it's, it's increasing the cost of energy, but trying to make us all, uh, you know, electrify the transportation fleet and everything else. So it's just, it's a, it's a bad deal. It's not a new deal. It's a bad deal for American families. Let me just add something to that. It's a contradiction if you take for granted that what they say is their objective. I don't do that. I think that what their objective is is to move the economy far to the left, to centralize control over the economy uh, within Washington, within the bureaucracy, um, so that they can move the country in a very specific direction. So while they say they want to achieve some sort of energy or environmental goal, um, that is to – show or to convince the Amer Americans that that's what they want to do. But in fact, what they want to do is change the nature of our economy. And that's what this bill moves us toward. Uh, Jack, or to follow up, are there any specifics in the bill that you'd like to highlight? Well, I agree with everything Tom just said. I mean, he, he did a great job of listing the, the many lowlights of it. But I'll, I will say this. I'll add this to Tom's list. It's a missed opportunity. Um, we right now as a country are seeing the effects of bad energy policy. Um, you have bad energy policy layered on bad COVID policy, layered on top of bad economic policy. And you had, I think, momentum within the, Amer within the American populace to make changes on the energy front. And um, this could have done that. And it didn't. And it will make us worse off. And we will pay for it until, you know, if we're lucky enough to do what, what Tom said and claw it back. So speaking about what it kind of a missed opportunity is the the name Inflation Reduction Act, you know, you would think, well, it might actually help to reduce prices, but I would suggest that it doesn't. So Jack, I'm gonna come right back to you. Um I would argue, and would you agree that this bill will actually potentially drive up energy prices? It will without question drive up energy prices. It uses um Things like subsidies to give the impression that it's going to lower prices, but it won't. And when you subsidize something, you allow that thing into the marketplace at a price point that is uncompetitive. You um, you stop innovation within those industries. That will end up in higher costs. It um, purposefully 
increases the costs of the most affordable types of energy, that will result in people uh, in the near term using less of it, having less investment in it. It distorts capital flows. All of these things over time make our economy, our energy economy, less efficient, um, less able to produce affordable energy. And that will result in higher costs across the board, both in the near term and those costs will accrue over time, leading to higher costs over the long term. So, Tom, what, what's your take on how this legislation could impact energy prices? Jack's spot on. Uh, I'll, I'll try to make it a little more granular, though. The federal government has already spent in excess of $100 billion on renewable energy credits for electricity generation for wind and solar, $40 billion alone on wind. And yet, what do you think they supplied our total energy use last year? Take a guess. Uh, 1%. Uh, uh, actually, more optimistic, 5%. 5%. So what kind of an ROI are we getting for that? I messed right? that whole thing up, sir. That's okay. 5%. There's no ROI, in my opinion. Uh, average electricity prices in the United States have increased 7% since 2009 through 2017. This is in spite of the fact that the relative cost of coal and natural gas has declined over that entire period. Right. And then in states where this this stuff is already in sort of full swing, like California and New York, their electricity prices have increased by between 18 and 40 percent during that same period. So, yeah, it will increase energy prices. Why? Because if you look at Europe, if you look at California, if you look at New York, we have proof positive that these policies increase energy prices. You know, the sad part is. Given all of this spending that the federal government has done and state governments have done um, to to advance in an effort to advance so-called renewable um, energy sources, given all that money, if the government would just step away right now, say we're done subsidizing energy, if by chance any of that money had flow had gone to promising sources of energy, promising business practices, this would be the opportunity to allow all of the, the the least effective, least efficient renewable sources to, to, to go to the wayside and those that have the most promise for that money to go back into those and to increase their use um, within the economy. But Washington bureaucrats come to this process with such hubris that they don't they, – they can't even imagine that maybe American innovation, American ingenuity, and American free markets could push the things forward, even that they say they want. They can't, they, can't let, they can't reduce the control over it. And this would be an opportunity to if, – if solar is going to work, let it go out and compete and work. If wind's going to work – and the wind and the solar people, they'll tell you, oh, it's competitive. It's already so cheap, the, 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 you know, cheaper than gas, cheaper than oil. OK, now's the time to put up or shut up is the approach that we should have taken. Tom, you probably know the history of the kind of wind and solar better than certainly I do. I, I mean, as far as I recall, the the promise of wind and solar has been talked about since at least the seventies, um, and here we are again, and just continually, you know, more and more subsidies for it. I'm not sure if what your take is on that. Just a brief history. We don't yeah we don't have I, a full history lesson. I have a very. Um I've been fighting the wind production tax credit for my entire time at IER, uh, and that has been that long, <laughs> 15 years. And, and like you said, this policy started as a, you know, all these policies start this way. We just need a little incentive, just a little boost 
to get ourselves going in the marketplace. But then we're going to be fine. Even the wind lobby has used the, 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 the rhetoric that they're the cheapest form of electricity, that they don't need any of this stuff. But yet then they cry and they complain every time it has expired briefly over the years. So, yeah, we've spent pl- in excess of $40 billion on wind alone, just the federal subsidy. That doesn't include state mandates. As you know, many of the states, more than half, have con- uh, basically mandated a certain percentage of wind and solar uh, to be sort of forced market share. So these guys have had every opportunity to succeed in the market. They only succeed in the market because of the favoritism, the subsidies, the mandates. They couldn't compete on their own. I'm not against wind. I'm not against solar. I'm not against any of these forms of energy. But if they had spent the last 40 years trying to figure out how to compete in a true marketplace, I believe their product would be better than it is today instead of just chasing that government paycheck year after year after year. Going back to the history, Darren, just real briefly, I mean, we've been subsidizing the U.S. government's been subsidizing, trying to promote these things. I mean, even Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the, the White House roof. Reagan took them off. Um, and all that stuff was sort of low-level, low-key promotion. I would argue that things really kicked up in, with the Energy Policy Act of 2005. That's when we had a uh, what some people call an all-of-the-above energy policy. I would call a subsidized all-of-the-above energy policy. And if you look at the um, – it was 2005 and the 2007 Act, um, whether it's carbon capture and sequestration, nuclear, wind, solar, ethanol, all of these things that um, the those bills were supposed to promote, the kickstart, um, we see them today in as uh, bad condition or worse than they were then, which goes um, – de- demonstrates the folly of that approach when in fact what we should be doing is reducing regulation, reducing subsidies – um, building a competitive market so that all energy sources can compete and the best ones that Americans want to use uh, will win. Yeah, and Jack, just just to accent that, uh, in 05, there was a Republican Congress and a Republican president. So this is not necessarily a partisan problem. Yeah, so, so Tom, uh, you, you brought up this point earlier. I mean, obviously, this is a big push for electricity. Right now, from pushing for EVs to trying to get people to stop using natural gas appliances. And in fact, one of my colleagues here at Heritage, uh, Rachel Wolpert, has written a really good piece on how a lot of local governments are banning natural gas hookups um, in new construction. Uh, will this push even help to reduce greenhouse gases? So let's just kind of assume, you know, that's their goal. Will even achieve their alleged goal. And, and what are some of your other thoughts on this entire effort to kind of push to electricity everywhere? Yeah, a couple of things. First, you know, natural gas is a great source for appliances, stoves, home heating, right? Um, we have about 180 million Americans using natural gas to heat their homes, cook their food, run their appliances, and, and over 5 million businesses use it as well to run their workplaces and manufacturing. So you ban this stuff, you take away choice, you take away diversification, and it's clean, burns clean, right? So the idea that this is somehow 
you know, uh, an important factor in reducing emissions is uh, I'm going back to Jack's point. Uh, it, it is a talking point, not a re- not a real, not a real uh, objective. Um, you look at EVs, EV, what is an EV getting you? There is no measurable life cycle emission uh, uh, advantage. If you look across the entire spectrum of building an EV to running it through its normal life versus an uh, uh, internal combustion engine vehicle. And it costs more. The average price of an EV right now is about 66000 bucks compared to 46000 for internal combustion cars, new cars. And these are going up, not down. Just last week, the F-150 Lightning Ford announced that they were going to jack the price up by like, say, 7000 bucks, which is, oh, roughly the amount of the uh, tax credit. Hmm. Go figure. So you're not getting anything for it. And they keep saying the price will eventually go down. No, because they're putting pressure on the components, lithium, cobalt, all these things that, of course, are being produced in China and or controlled by China. Um, and that is putting upward pressure on those input costs, which means that as a market, uh, as a market works, the cost goes up. So you're not getting anything for it other than a feel good sort of token symbol um, that really, you know, the, the tax credit has really uh, benefited people who are rich anyway. So it's just a terrible policy across the board and it doesn't do anything to reduce emissions overall. Jack, any thoughts on this push for electricity? Electricity like carbon dioxide, um, as Tom pointed out, is something that hundreds of millions of people use. Thus, if you control it, then you control them. And I I hate to uh, sound hyperbolic, and I don't think that I am, that this is all about control. It's about controlling how people live their lives, how they spend their money, um, how they engage in in their life throughout the spectrum of everything we do. And that's what we have to keep coming back to. And, And when you look at things like the EV, if in fact... Those who advocate these sorts of policies wanted EVs to be successful. They would recognize what Tom just pointed out. When you subsidize something by $70,000, all of a sudden things go up $7,000. That is almost a rule of nature, whether we're talking subsidies for education, corn, or uh, 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 EVs. The subsidies do not reduce the price. The subsidies simply funnel money towards special interests. Um, So not only are you – are you um, taking away the incentive uh, – you're taking away the ability for these companies to reduce prices through certain content requirements and things like that. But you take away the market incentive for them to drive down the prices. If they wanted these things to be successful, they would get rid of the subsidies. Um, they would put their money where their mouth is. And look, EV cars, they, they probably have a valuable segment in the market. Um, but we don't know that because we haven't been able to see – EVs have not benefited from the, uh, the market pressures that would yield the best product that would serve the most people for the best price. And that's, the, that's sort of the sad part of all of this. I just, I'll just add to – you know, we, we always – I agree with you, Jack. It, you know, it's about control, but it's about more than that. And hopefully we can get into that later. Pushing everything into electrification at the same time that you are – also pushing 
unreliable, expensive electricity generation is a double whammy for families. Poor people, seniors, people on fixed incomes, they pay a fixed percentage of their monthly budgets on electricity. Right now with this inflation, with the increased cost of gas, they are dipping into their savings. They're using credit cards. I heard a stat yesterday that Americans on average are spending 700 bucks a month more just to live. This only gets worse with these policies. So, so Tom, I think there's a, a feeling that the EVs and, and this push for electricity, that somehow magically things, electricity just comes from, you know, the the atmosphere or something, and it's just magically created. And there's kind of no recognition of the fact that, well, guess what? We have to actually increase the sources of electricity, the the plants, um, and that will have pressures on the grid, um, other impacts. Uh, I think there's kind of this misleading kind of this myth that – I don't even know it's a myth, just kind of this – people don't think it through. Uh, just want to get your take on that. Yeah, look, 30 years ago, out of all the energy used, 80% of it came from three sources – coal, natural gas, and oil. Today, it's about 80%. Uh, EIA, the Energy Information Administration, predicts that in 30 years, it'll be, you know, maybe 79%, right? We use those sources of energy in spite of decades of massive subsidization of the alternatives in Europe. Now going on decades here, these, these things have barely made a dent in terms of market penetration, if you look at the big picture. So what is this about, really? Uh, as Jack said, it's about controlling energy because when you control energy, you control the economy. It's about rewarding constituencies. Uh, there's a whole bunch of walk-around money in this in this quote-unquote Inflation Reduction Act, which is merely just grants to communities to promote climate you know, solutions, right? That's read between the lines. That's just basically you know, walk around money. Uh, so it, it's, it's not a serious energy policy. It's a, it's a very serious political policy, but not a serious energy policy. I mean, if you look at how this whole thing unfolds, it controls most of us, but it leaves the elite outside of that bubble. And so rich folks who, you know, the, the, these sorts of things don't affect them because they can afford an EV, if anyone, if, if you know, they, they can afford to live outside of this bubble that these policies create while everyone else, it increases their cost. Then the left comes in and says, oh, we, we will give you this additional handout now that costs increase. And it creates this vicious cycle of government dependence. And you see it. This is what we're talking about today is one manifestation of the left's policies and how they create this the society of dependence on government, which then translates into control over time. And, um, and you know, that, that's, what, that's what we're dealing with. So I just wanted to point out, like, as relates to kind of the wealthy getting these, enjoying the benefits of the EV credits, our colleague Katie Tubbs has written a piece on EVs, which I recommend. And she points out that about half of the, um, the EV credits are being enjoyed by corporations, the other half for individual taxpayers, and then about 80% of that, of those individual taxpayers have an income of over 100000 
Um, it's also interesting that about 40% of the registered EV vehicles are in California. Um, just kind of give people a, a picture of the kind of the EV situation. But we, we were talking about kind of real energy policy there. So let's let's talk about real energy policy and next steps for conservatives. And I, I think we've kind of discussed this before. But, Jack, let, let's start with the big picture. What is the left getting wrong when it comes to energy and climate agenda? Because I feel like if we can figure out what they're getting wrong, we can then figure out yeah. what they get right. So the, they, I would argue they are disguising energy policy with social and political policy and economic policy. When we talk about energy policy, we should actually be talking about energy policy, which is we need to do what works. We need to open up America's energy resources because we have so many abundant resources for American uh, businesses and individuals to develop those resources, to make the energy choices that work best for them and their families. That should really be at the heart of energy policy is moving it back into the private sector, getting government out, focusing the government on – um, establishing a workable regulatory environment, um, identifying where there does need to be regulation in very limited areas and, and, and focusing on that, but really putting the energy development, energy choice into the hands of American families and businesses. On the environmental side, um, we need to understand where environmental policy should reside. I would argue it should not reside in Washington by and large, except in very, very limited uh, areas, and that it should be at the um, state and local level, and even the individual level, strengthening things like property rights. These are the types of things that actually will yield good environmental outcomes. And then from the sort of the 30,000-foot level, we, we, the Heritage Foundation has produced research over decades in the Index of Economic Freedom that shows actually what yields the best environmental outcomes is economic development, giving people the wherewithal to invest back into the environment actually will yield um, better a better, cleaner environment. I mean, we see that with the air we breathe. There's this notion out there that the air is getting dirtier, the water is getting dirtier, that we have fewer trees. None of that's true. If you look over time, all of these things um, are, are, in, are on the right trajectory. What We are not confronted with a choice of economic development or a clean environment, what people actually can determine for themselves without government intervening is that we can achieve both economic development and environmental cleanliness. And that's what should that's where we should be building our policies around. Actually, I, I would argue that I think it's almost a prerequisite to have the economic development to have the, the environmental improvement. But I think that's something that some of us gets lost. And, and actually, Jack, I want to follow up with you. Um, look, a lot of people on the left – would argue that we need to make changes, major changes in our economy and and in the way we live our lives to address climate change. It's a um, existential threat, and and we need to make those changes, even if that requires some pain. What do you think? Do we need to endure some pain? <laughs> I don't think that we need to endure some pain at the hands of government because the government because the government policies um, on climate change or the environment. In fact, as I was just say, saying. Um, there, Americans have already lived policies that yield, um, that yield higher standards of living, part of which is a cleaner environment. And, um, what we, what we have seen over time is that as, as the environment gets cleaner, government hasn't retooled how it approaches environmental policy. It, it, it ratchets it 
down, which gives us, which gives Americans um, less uh, less choice, le- less space in which to uh, engage in economically productive activities. Um, gives us less space to engage in environmentally productive activities because the government, through regulation, is is defining all of those behaviors for us, and that's where the pain comes in. So. I absolutely out of hand reject the idea that um, we should uh, lower our standards of living in order to achieve some government-defined environmental policy objective. So, Tom, let me just turn these questions over to you. What's left getting wrong when it comes to energy and climate policy? What they're not getting – they're not getting anything right, really. Uh, (laughs) So, I mean, I don't – I mean, I can associate myself with – the good honorable gentleman Jack's remarks. I mean, this is top, it's all top down and you can guarantee that a good leftist policy is one that does the exact opposite of what they claim they want it to do. Okay. I want to address this existential threat business because if this was truly, if they truly believe this was an existential threat, it wouldn't, they, they would be able to do things more than just, shoveling billions of dollars into the pockets of utilities and solar companies and wind companies and automobile manufacturers. This is what they're, this is what they're basically, this is the political bandwidth that they have. They can't do anything punitive because they won't get reelected. They might not get reelected with this business, but let me, it's just not serious. If it was serious, then they would spend $390 billion to have the Defense Department build nuclear plants in beautiful places like the Presidio because it's carbon-free electricity generation, right, if they believed this was existential. And let me just point out that th- th- this is a globe that we live in. The United States has already done more in terms of emission reductions even before all of this this bill through one simple thing, that involved technology and property rights, and that was fracking, hydraulic fracturing, uh, combined with horizontal drilling to produce shale gas. Now, I want to say this, too, because this is really important. They keep talking about how we need to change our economy and change the way we, we drive and the way that we live. They are ignoring the fact that China announced just this year in April that it is increasing their coal output by 300 million tons. The increase alone is half of the U.S. coal production. The increase alone. Okay, China already uses more coal than the rest of the world combined. And they're expecting to increase their coal-fired generation capacity by 150 gigawatts between now and 2025. This is a four and five decade investment, right? So for 50 years, these plants will, will burn coal. And they just announced that they're not, quote unquote, negotiating with special envoy carry on climate change because of, you know, some moves that were made in Taiwan. So everybody knows this. The folks who are promoting this stuff has all the same information that we have. But what they're not doing is sharing that with the public. I've heard some people kind of focus on like conservatives. The target should be, you know, let's go after the IRA, the the Inflation Reduction Act. And my concern, this is, would be that 
the kind of conservative agenda just becomes, let's just undo the Inflation Reduction Act and when it comes to climate and energy. And that's certainly a worthy goal. But I, I would contend that conservatives need a really bold agenda that's not just always responding to the left, but actually articulating our own vision. And, and, and Tom, I, I just want to get your take on kind of that, uh, that my thinking on that. I think you're right. Um, but I but I caution that the solution isn't to replace this behemoth government program with like a slightly less intrusive <laughs> right. government program, right? I mean, the hard work is convincing people, your constituents, that by first doing no harm, that is always my first energy policy solution, first do no harm. And second, by breaking down this labyrinth of subsidization, this Byzantine structure of government intervention in energy is an energy policy, right? Because the more that you unwind it, the more that the market directs it and the better the outcomes. So yeah, it's hard to be a free market guy and say, what's the solution without saying, no, the solution is a do no harm and B get rid of start start peeling back the onion the layers of the onion on this what i call death spiral of subsidization in energy markets and get out of the way those are the those are really important first steps yeah tom, and okay, okay. I, I absolutely agree with tom on all of that i think that's critical there's another element of this too that we need to address at the federal level which is the department of energy which is the where a lot of this stuff emanates from and executes a lot of this stuff. There are elements within the Department of Energy that are important for the government to do. Things like our national nuclear, um, national security nuclear stuff is in the Department of Energy. The, um, the environmental cleanup, which is the cleanup of, of the, the waste that we produced in producing the nuclear weapons. Um, a limited element of the, of the um, national labs probably have a role. But all the other stuff should go like we don't need a Department of Energy. We need to recognize that um, energy markets are robust. Everyone uses it. There's lots of money to be made. There are diverse suppliers. Really, the energy market's the perfect market um, because of how large it is, all, the, all the, the innovation. There's so much opportunity there. Of all of the markets in the world, the one that we need a federal bureaucracy to oversee least is probably energy markets. Yet we have this Department of Energy that um, that promulgates all of the garbage um, with help from Congress that Tom just described. We need to take a serious look about whether or not uh, we have a Department of Energy who actually engages in energy stuff and how to begin unwinding those elements of DOE that no longer have, I would argue, have ever had any value. So throughout our discussion so far, we've been talking about – we've actually talked about some, I think, some key principles that would go into a bold kind of conservative vision for, for energy and, and climate. Uh, and I just wanted to see if we could kind of expand upon that and discuss maybe a, a few other kind of principles. Now, one key principle, and Tom, I agree with you about it being a free market guy, when you talk to like a staffer on the Hill and they – like with subsidies and you say get rid of the subsidies and then like okay what do we replace it with and it becomes difficult for a free market person to say well nothing that's the whole point so in addition to kind of like getting out of the kind of the market or 
you know, what, what are some kind of core principles that you think conservatives need to be pushing and kind of articulating for our own vision as it relates to energy policy? Well, I mean, by doing a lot of the, you know, re, uh, re-upping and, and cleaning up of our major environmental statutes, we uh, would be successful in unleashing our, uh, as Jack mentioned, our abundant sources of energy. We do it better than anyone in the world. We do it cleaner than anyone in the world. We have the highest environmental standards of anyone in the world. Why not do it here? Why are we begging Saudi Arabia for oil? Why are we restarting talks with the, the government of Venezuela for oil? It's ridiculous. We have the resources here. We have the most uh, oil and gas and coal under our lands and waters than any country in the world, including Russia. Um, we can do it here. Jack mentioned property rights, right? That's a huge part of the of why the U.S. shale revolution happened and why it didn't happen in Europe, where they have abundant shale resources, because the landowners got a piece of the action, right? They became part of the solution, and they got wealthy in the process. You know, there's got to be this recognition that the federal government is just really, really lousy at predicting outcomes. Just give you one example. And it gets it's worse than that, too, by the way. But I'll get into that because of the incentives for biodiesel and and clean diesel and jet fuel and all this biofuel subsidization. Our U.S. refining capacity has been reduced by about a million barrels a day since 2019. Because these companies are responding to what the government is saying. They're saying, we don't want your dirty, stinking product anymore. We want you to make something else. And we're going to give you a whole bunch of money to do it. Well, that's what they're doing. And so how does that affect us? Well, look at the price of gas. So these policies have uh, uh, perverse incentives. And that's why it's really important to stand your ground with staff and say, no, man, you can you can turn this around and say, this is good for you, Right. We're going to increase, get you know, we're going to lower the price of gas by doing by getting rid of these subsidies. So, I know it's not easy. It's not fun. It's not hip. It doesn't like respond to the media, right? But it is the critical component of this is to get this government out of the business of energy. It's a great point, Jack. Do you have some like some principles that you would kind of highlight that you think would be part of this bull vision? I think we need to recognize what the negative impacts – we've already touched on this some – of this leftist energy policy, that it increases energy poverty. Um, that's a real issue. It's one that, that makes it that much more difficult for anyone to achieve the American dream. And I think that those are the terms that we need to, we need to think about. We need to focus on the, on, on the idea that American innovation and ingenuity is where we will find solutions, not in government bureaucracy. Um, so whenever we talk to those staffers about reducing this or abolishing the subsidies, reducing the regulation, you, we're not replacing it with nothing. Our recommendation is not to replace it with nothing. It's to replace it with American ingenuity, um, American investment. That's where we will, I think, yield the, the greatest benefit across the board. So um, I think get, getting back to um, doing things the American way, I mean, that's the American way to – to, to, to go out and compete and to build and to innovate. That's what we do. And Jack, just, just to put a fine point on that, I, I think there's there are factors beyond government policies and leftist policies that are driving a lot of this 
and that is this ESG stuff, right? This, oh, this, yeah. this investing. Uh, this is Wall Street sort of, you know, teaming up with the left to demonize these amazing resources, these life-giving resources. Uh, we need to stand up against that stuff as well and this perversion of capitalism that's taking place because it is having an effect on it's it's sort of seizing investment opportunities in these you know politically unfavored resources so that that's something we need to emphasize as well and and politicians are starting to recognize the problem that we've seen for years on the on this side of the equation yeah it's definitely part of the full on assault over the american economy that left that the left has instigated and has begun executing and you know one of the one of the things i think people don't recognize is that a lot of these things when the economy is going well and everything's fine because of the robustness of the american economy we can sort of withstand it there are some price increases here some frustrations there but you sort of can look past them um it's whenever we're then confronted with adversity that all of these accumulative things that, that these things that accumulate over time really make it difficult um, for us to adjust. And then something has to release. And that release comes in the forms of higher prices or empty shelves. And that's what we're seeing happening today. And the ESG is just an additional part of that, an additional friction that gets layered into the system so that whenever we are confronted with adversity, we are we being the American people, American business are less able to respond to it. And then that opens the door to even more government policy. And that's exactly what we've seen happen in the past and we're seeing happen now. So I want to bring up a point that might be a, a little philosophical, but I kind of feel like there is a a human guilt movement out there. Um, there's or called environmental gaslighting, whatever you want to call it, where there's just kind of it's almost like romantic to kind of complain about humans and how we're destroying the planet and how we we shouldn't eat this, we shouldn't live like this, we um, shouldn't drive. It's, a certain car, and we're just creating all kinds of damages to the planet. And I, I feel like many times the left does so. The left will take advantage of this guilt, and I think have played into that guilt and probably have created a lot of it. And then they push the policy simply to address the, at least with the pretext of the climate change, without any recognition of the the trade offs that, and they don't value um, productivity efficiency, like food uh, efficiency, and instead the number one goal across every, the whole government approach is to address climate change, regardless of what the agency's mission might actually be, um, but climate change becomes the number one mission for USDA or for whatever agency. So I I don't know. It's kind of a philosophical question, Jack. I'm just wondering what your thought is on kind of like this, what I think of as kind of a human guilt movement. Philosophical, philosophical questions are difficult. Um <laughs> Uh, I, I obviously reject that idea. I think that um, humanity is an incredible thing. Um, what humans have produced um, in in raising our own standards of living, but as well as managing to somehow um, live here and protect the environment, um, is 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 a pretty amazing thing. So that all said. Um, what I think we see happening is um, the elite, the governing elite who, um, who drive this sort of agenda, they do create this, this guilt complex thing that they then use as the foundation to um, justify their broader policy. It, it becomes almost religious in a sense 
And whenever your whenever your public policy is presented you, to you in religious terms, you know um, that <laughs> you know that something has gone awry because someone is trying to replace um, your own uh, personal spiritual um, beliefs with their own. And you see that with climate change. You see that with what you just brought up, Darren. Um, and that that is very problematic. Whenever 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 that dynamic occurs, and that's what we see happening. So, Tom, I want to build on something that Jack just brought up. Um, so, so one one problem I also see is this is a big problem in environment energy generally. Is the science and policy are constantly getting conflated together. So, and when we but we really see this in the climate change context where it's really pronounced. So the, the the question of whether the climate is changing is distinct from what types of policies, if any, one would adopt to address uh, a changing climate. Um, unfortunately, if someone, at least from the less perspective, if someone doesn't believe in the less policy solutions to climate change, that person is labeled to be a climate change denier. And then scientists often present their, their subjective ideological views on policies as somehow being deserving of greater weight because they're scientists, or even claiming that their policy view is, in fact, science. You get this kind of conflating again of science and policy. I just wanted to see if you, you know, are, are seeing this problem and what your thoughts are on how to address it. Sure, sure. You know, I, I think the important distinction that you mentioned is the is is the what type of policies would one adopt. Right. If you don't subscribe to the top down government centric approach to any issue, uh, you're you're sort of in that pariah camp. Um, and the media has largely played along with that, which, you know, makes it and this might be controversial, but it makes it hard for conservatives because they feel left out of the conversation. Right. And so you have some of these groups that are sort of forming out there that, that claim to be conservative, seeking conservative solutions to climate change, which are really just sort of polished versions of, like I said, top-down government light, uh, lighter, 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 happier, shinier versions of these left leftist policies. Um, and the money interest is a huge factor, right? I mean, you know, I, I hate to bore our listeners with history, but, you know, Dwight Eisenhower warned against the military industrial complex. That sort of is a thing that a lot of people remember. But in that same speech, he warned against this sort of letting scientists run amok with policy. Um, and that, you know, I, I would argue that there were echoes of that with the COVID response. And there are echoes of that with uh, with this approach to uh, reducing CO2 emissions. I'd like to follow up on that. It, I would argue, Tom, it's not echoes of it. We're smacked in the face of it with it. Um, we need to understand what the role of science and policy should be. And when, um, when, that, when that is miscalculated, it sets us up for um, moving towards tyranny. And here's what I mean by that. The role of science should be to inform policymakers. We live in a democracy. Policymakers need to take in all sorts of information, um, including science, and then from that – they make a decision. Science does not dictate an outcome. Um, the economics does not necessarily dictate an outcome. These are all things that inform the policymaker. The moment that you allow the thing or you frame the thing 
as dictating outcomes, now you've corrupted it. The moment you say science dictates the outcome, now you're corrupting the science because you can use the scientific uh, conclusion to now determine what your policy outcome is. And if that's the case, now you have a huge incentive, and this is what I would argue is happening with climate, in order to um, bias the science to benefit your conclusion. And that's what we need to be careful of. And that's, that's, that's what we saw happen with COVID. That's what we see happening with climate. We see it with all sorts of stuff. The whole follow the science movement is not about following the science. It's about using science um, to dictate policy outcomes. And, and, and that's an issue. Let me, let me give you an anecdotal example of, 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 of making choices, right? Uh, just It's a small one, but I was in Costa Rica a number of years ago, and I had a chance to spend time with the, the country's preeminent mangrove guy. Like, you know, the, the mangroves that suck up the salt water uh, and help form barriers for, for hurricanes and everything else. And his job was to yay or nay the destruction of mangroves. And he said something to me that was extremely poignant. He said, you know, as a mangrove lover, a researcher, sort of devoted my whole life to the preservation of the species, it would be easy for me to say no to everything, he said. But I'm also a Costa Rican, and and I have brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and friends, and we need economic development, and we need opportunities as well. And I have to take all of that into consideration when I make these decisions. And I think that's a great approach of using science as a guide, but also factoring in uh, everything else that Jack talked about. So as we wrap up, um, what are a few key takeaways that you think our listeners should take with them about the next steps conservatives should take when it comes to energy and climate? And Jack, let's just start with you. On environment, I don't want to talk – Putting aside climate, because I think that's a whole separate discussion. Um, on that, we need to better understand human impact on climate before we make it the center of our public policy. On environment, we have an entire uh, – we have all these environmental policies on the books that um, were from a different time and place. They all need to be rethought, if not completely gotten rid of, at least rethought and reimagined and understand what we need for environmental policy today. The philosophical underpinning of that process should be to move as much environmental policy down to the individual and to state and local as possible and to recognize the importance of things like property rights um, and economic freedom in achieving environmental outcomes. And if th- that's your framing, we'll end up in a good spot. On energy, we need to recognize, I think, just to reiterate what I said earlier, energy markets are robust and they would be healthy if left alone. And we need to recognize the importance of individual Americans and American businesses in producing the clean, abundant, affordable energy that Americans want. We need to remember what the market is. The market's not some amorphous thing that consists of, you know, Daddy Warbucks and Mr. Monopoly sort of, you know, exchanging our hard-earned labor and money in on Wall Street. What markets are, markets are all of us as individuals engaging in um, when they're working properly and allowed to open uh, to, 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 to work, engaging in um, commerce with one another free exchange, and that's the best way for us to express as individuals what we demand in energy, including if if I want EVs and windmills, I can get out into the marketplace and spend money and find suppliers to do that. Um, we don't need government to intervene in that process. And for folks who want to see these sorts of energy sources, these alternatives to conventional energy sources be successful, we need to understand 
that the best way for that to happen over time is for government to get out of the way and allow the market to operate. And I think if we go into it in that way, we'll end up with a better environmental outcomes and better energy outcomes. Jack, just to follow up, isn't the fact that there are state renewable energy mandates, that there are mandate, these all these credits, all these subsidies, all these incentives to do exactly what the government wants, isn't that kind of a suggestive of the fact that maybe consumers are not necessarily demanding it? I think that anytime you have a government mandate to do anything, what you are acknowledging is that the people don't want it. Um, we don't need you know, a government mandate to eat Apple Jacks because kids love Apple Jacks. Um, and that's just that's, – that's the way it is. So whenever, um, whenever government starts mandating something, you better uh, think long and hard about supporting it. Even if you support that thing, that what you're really supporting is government compelling people to engage in behaviors they would not otherwise engage in. And that's dangerous, in a, certainly to me, in a free uh, democratic country. So, Tom, uh, some key takeaways? Yeah, I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction on this. Um, and I'm going to say to do all of the things that Jack talked about, which are important and necessary. One of the most important things we need to do in the short term is to fix Congress, because Congress is broken. Uh, the legislative body is is uh, also top down totalitarian. The the reason that we have this reconciliation bill, this hyper partisan process, is because Congress doesn't work anymore. If we had subcommittee hearings, full committee hearings, if we had robust amendments on on the floor of each body, if we had the you know resurrect the now extinct conference committee. I think we could I think the conservative philosophy and the free market uh, uh, approach to governing would prevail. Uh, and so I think that, you know, uh, it's a little bit of a side tangent, but uh, I think that the reason that we see just such a sweeping executive and we see all these fights about Supreme Court nominee uh, justices is because there is this inherent recognition that one of the three co-equal branches, but what the Constitution clearly uh, pointed out is that the legislative body had a little bit more oomph in that conversation is is just completely broken. It's just it's it's a a, a figment of its of its former self. And so if we don't get that done, we can't reform all these laws and, and get all these good this good stuff done. So I think that's an important takeaway. Jack and Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Once again, I'm Darren Back, Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation at the Heritage Foundation. I want to thank all of you who are listening to the program and hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. Please tell your family, friends, and colleagues about the PowerCast and be on the lookout for the next edition coming out in two weeks. Thank you again.